This is not the media. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, all of the really smart people in the early 1990s were insisting that it was the end of history. The Western capitalist democracy had won the Cold War, and from here on out, there would be no significant changes in the way we lead our lives, run our economy, or our government. But for that being as good as it was ever going to get, things were not looking all that great. Those on the left were warning about things to come. They were concerned about climate change and took radical, even what some might call violent action, to raise awareness of whatever impending doom awaited us with global warming. Following 9-11, the left was dismissed again as it warned of the growing police and surveillance state, which created the Department of Homeland Security, that the left was certain would be turned on them and us as it was. It was the end of history, but history just kept happening anyways, and that world where nothing would ever change again after the early 1990s, it changed into a place of precarity and a gig economy that was different from what anyone could have imagined back when they were talking about history's end. We'll talk all about how history didn't end, it just kept sucking when we speak in a few minutes with writer Malcolm Harris about his new book, This is where Alex will be doing a lot of bleeping. Shit is fucked up and bullshit. History since the end of history. We also hope to get to Malcolm's most recent writing at Commune Magazine. What the COVID-19 relief bill offers is a little survival as a treat. It's time for a counter-proposal, which you can find at communemag.com. And it's a fascinating read, so if we don't get to it, make certain you include Malcolm Harris's writing at Commune Mag as part of your pandemic reading. Malcolm is former editor at the New Inquiry, columnist at Al Jazeera America, writer at the Pacific Standard. Malcolm is also author of the book Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, which we discussed with him back in 2017 when the book was published. You can find that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Malcolm Harris. Malcolm is a contributor with the Philly Child Care Collective, and you can follow him on Twitter at Big Mean Internet. Big Mean Internet. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new about you, Alex? Uh, you ever wonder if uh, the fact that you're so terrified of the future means you're making health choices that means you won't get there? <laughs> like? Just like destroying your body with drugs. Oh, that, that, yeah, well, I mean, sure. But I stopped uh, eating microwave food, so I got rid of all those chemicals on my body. I'm yeah, actually eating three fresh meals a day because my girlie's at home. So uh, I'm eating like five fresh meals a day. <laughs> are you? That's my, maybe that's the source of my problem. I'm losing weight, which is not, which is weird. It doesn't really make sense. Eh, what are you going to do? Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is. What are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? <laughs> All replies get read on today and tomorrow's show, and the winner gets 10 This Is Hell Subvertising stickers. I'm six feet away from my future. That's where I am. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. What are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? Following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us your reply via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. If we do not get to Malcolm Harris's writing at Commune Mag on COVID 19, and even if we do, 
You gotta check out his article because when I woke up in the middle of the night for my regular burglar check, it's what my dad used to call getting up and peeing at night, I couldn't stop thinking about Malcolm's article. Just consider this. What if what we're experiencing right now, what you're doing right now, what if this is the new normal? That we all sit at home from here on out, afraid of the virus, sequestered away, quarantined, told it's good for the environment, it fights climate change, that we'll all get UBI and stay home until our skills align with that of an essential worker, when capital allows us to go out into the world again, but only to work, and once we get ill or are no longer essential, we're shipped back home to stay in our boxes until the next time our skills are called upon to be used abused and again undervalued now that's not verbatim what malcolm is writing but it is what i was thinking when i was peeing in the middle of the night last night and really who can trust their thoughts while urinating they're usually confused distracted by the need to be accurate and the fact that your bare feet which were until recently toasty warm in bed are now freezing slabs on your cold bathroom tile floor But yeah, I couldn't stop thinking about Malcolm's suggestion, his argument that this is how it's going to be, not for another month, not for another year, not until 2022, as a new study stated yesterday, but forever. And we'll tolerate it because despite all of the death and destruction that's happening around us, despite the world being destroyed by global pandemics and climate change, despite just outside our windows, our world is ending. The economy is doing just fine, thank you. So what happens when an economy can profit during plagues and planetary destruction? Well, get ready for a lot more plagues and devastation because capitalism and financialization have figured out a way to make money off that too. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell and you can prove me wrong by emailing myself or Alex at chuck at com or alex at com. And we got an email this week, not about that topic, but we got an email this week from John in Duluth, who shared his thoughts on our Patreon podcast last week. You write, or John writes, Hi guys, just finished listening to the amusing and harrowing border drug crossing story and then the comments on Bernie. By the way, I'll be doing the final chapter of my run-ins with border agents at the U.S.-Canada border on Friday's Patreon podcast. So if you want to hear the first two chapters of all of my run-ins at the border and the final chapter this week, all you have to do is subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell so you can hear our exclusive Patreon podcast live-streamed and podcast for Patreon subscribers only every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. John continues, I've been reading many of the same Jacobin articles you guys were talking about when you were mentioning Bernie Sanders on Patreon, and they didn't irritate me as much as they do Alex. Not sure why. Maybe I've been sucked into the new socialist MSNBC. Yeah, I got to tell you, John, they didn't bug me as much as Alex, but that's probably because Alex made the mistake of actually reading them, and I couldn't make it past the headlines. John continues, Bernie had to build a new base this time. He didn't just carry along his old one from 2016. If he had, his poll numbers would have been much higher from the start, but they weren't. Biden's were. And that's a good point, John, which I didn't really consider. How much did the excitement of 2016 carry over to 2020 for the Sanders campaign? I didn't work on the campaign in 2016 or 2020. Those who worked on both would know better. So, 
If you're listening right now and you did work on the Sanders campaign in 2016 and or 2020 and you want to share your thoughts on why Bernie didn't win, please send them to us at Chuck at com or Alex at com, and we'll read what you have to say on air. Again, back to John's email. Just anecdotally, I know of a lot of local, older, white, progressive Democrats who voted Bernie last time mostly out of Hillary hate, but they happily switched to Warren or Klobuchar or whoever this time. And I didn't really think about that either, how much Bernie's popularity last time was driven by how much people just didn't want to have a continuation of Clintonianism. John continues, so he made big inroads among the working class and Latinos, as evidenced by both exit polls and donation statistics. And Bernie didn't just win caucuses. He won six primaries, including the largest primary in the country, California, which to me is very impressive. Came close to winning the Texas primary, too, even after South Carolina and the Great Dem Consolidation. And, you know, I just want to point out that Texas primary, Bernie may have been able to win, but there's so, so much voter suppression that's going on in Texas. Who the hell knows what's going on? And I think John is referring to a remark I made on Patreon when he's talking about uh, Bernie just winning caucuses. See, this is why you should subscribe to Patreon. That Bernie was the front runner. I was mentioning that Bernie was the front runner after two caucuses, and his supporters were very optimistic. But caucuses are very undemocratic processes. They're not one person, one vote. So all I was saying was that winning caucuses may not be indicative of exactly how much support a candidate is receiving, and that hopes may have been too high. John also adds, still, I don't consider Bernie a movement leader. If he were, he'd be forming some kind of new enduring structure right now that his supporters can join, maybe some kind of pre-party formation, maybe something else. At the very least, he would be calling on his followers to join organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America. He's more like someone who helps open the door for a movement, even though this analogy will most likely make Alex cringe. Love the show. John. John, I like your analysis. Sanders uh, changed the conversation. Whatever you think of Bernie and whatever you think of the DSA, it was not, if it was not for Bernie, well, you know, maybe if it wasn't for Occupy. Maybe it was Occupy who actually started this conversation. There wouldn't be a DSA. Medicare for all is a term in our public, political lexicon now. Student loan debt forgiveness is no longer seen as a heretical idea not to be mentioned in public. Sure, Bernie changed the conversation, which is great. Or maybe Occupy did. But now that the door... John was mentioning is open to at least considering policies that help the working class. The work of Sanders and any of his supporters who still believe in electoral politics is to make certain that door is not slammed shut by the Democratic Party and Joe Biden again, as it has done repeatedly for the last 40 years. Of course, the Republicans are worse for the working class, but that's a mighty low standard to use. Let's just all hope Bernie was not the movement and the movement was not all about Bernie because his foreign policy really sucked. Juan sent some guest suggestions as well to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com and Alex at ThisIsHell.com. Juan writes, Hi, Alex and Chuck. Got the This Is Hell coffee mug and hat that I ordered at ThisIsHell.com when I clicked on support. I would love to hear Ellen Brown or Rob Urie interviewed on This Is Hell. Juan, I know we have sent requests to Ellen Brown in the past, and I actually thought we had her on the show. And it's possible that we did, but our archives are in such a mess right now as they're under construction, I, I just can't tell. But we're going to look around in the archives and see if we do have an interview with Ellen. Juan also says that Ellen and Rob are both economists who have had articles published recently on Counterpunch on the topics of the U.S. government response to COVID and critiques of capitalism. Thanks for considering an interview with either of them. Additionally, I've also enjoyed articles by Massimo Pigliucci. 
Juan then sends links to each of the writer's most recent writing, including Ellen Brown's uh, Counterpunch article, Was the Fed Just Nationalized?, which is an interesting read. Uh, then he also, she also has Rob Urey's article at Counterpunch, Capitalism, the State Religion, which I know that our listeners would be interested in, and Massimo's reading at, writing at Aeon from last December, that's com. Consciousness is real. Consciousness is neither a spooky mystery nor an illusory belief. It's a valid and ca- causally efficacious biological reality as well as an anthology of Massimo's work entitled How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy, which was published in paperback in January. So those all sound very interesting. i got to know more about this Massimo Pigliucci. I don't know who that is. Juan, thanks for the reminder on Ellen Brown. We'll dig deep into the archives. And if we do have an old interview with her, I swear we talked to her about an article at Dollars and Cents years ago. We'll share it on Patreon. And thanks for the tips on Robin Massimo. We'll be looking into both as possible future guests. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. You can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can DM us via, via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is hell coming up on this is hell shit is fucked up and bullshit and more of and and your answers to this week's question from hell as well as uh who will be on tomorrow's show i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live stream podcast host chuck mertz producing is alex jerry this is not contrarian radio this is hell We were told that by the time the early 90s rolled around, history had ended. The U.S. had won the Cold War, and that brand of democracy and capitalism would now reign supreme without any detractors, leading us to an endless future of happiness through consumption and growth. Turns out, history didn't end after all. Returning to This Is Hell, Malcolm Harris is author of Shit Is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Malcolm. And thanks for having me. Malcolm was on our show back in December 2017 to talk about his then-just-published book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. You can follow Malcolm on Twitter, at Big Mean Internet, and you can find our interview with Malcolm from 2017 at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his name. So I'm going to ask you the really stupid media question about your book right away. Why is your book called Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit? What is the origin of that for those who do not know? For those who don't know, this is a a protest from Occupy Wall Street, from the Zuccotti Park demonstration, from the occupation. Uh, It was brought there by a guy named uh, Mickey Smith, who's a a postal service worker, some of our our, our frontline postal service workers. Um, And he brought a sign to the occupation and said, shit is fucked up and bullshit, and it went... I mean, I guess we still talked about things going viral back then, whatever. It went viral. Uh, everyone posted this sign that just spoke to uh, the, the really stated for the first time what had been the unstated premise of the whole occupations of like, it wasn't just one thing that we wanted to change. It wasn't campaign finance reform we wanted. It was that the whole situation was fucked up and bullshit. Uh, so it's important to, to give Mickey his credit. It was Mickey Smith. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, the you know the this this is this idea of the end of history in the early '90s, the end of history, and the last man is the 1992 book by political scientist and political economist Francis Fukuyama, which argued 
and far too many people believed we would no longer see any real changes in the way life is experienced as Western liberalism and capitalism had been victorious over communism and socialism. So we're at the end of history without any historic changes in our future when it comes to economics, governance, and society. Malcolm, in retrospect, looking back at not only the book, but the way in which the idea caught on, what does the end of history reveal to you about the way that the world was viewed in the 19, early 1990s? Yeah, I mean, I think even Fukuyama has, has withdrawn the, the hypothesis at this point. And this is, but this is the, as someone who was born in the late 80s, you know, this was the, the world that I grew up hearing in the back of the minivan on NPR. You know, this is the, uh, a world that was unifying into one capitalist whole, right? That's what China joining the WTO meant. Uh, it meant everyone was, was proceeding steadily toward liberal capitalist democracy because all of those things were, were tied together into one, uh, one bundle. If, if you recall, uh, back then, the idea was by admitting China into the WTO, admitting China into world uh, finance organizations, that this would have a, a liberalizing effect on China as a country and its political system that because the history tends toward liberal capitalist democracy, the more the system became integrated, the more liberal everyone would be. Well, obviously we haven't seen that. Instead, what we see is now the political class in the U.S. starting to admire the Chinese uh, regime's methods instead of the other way around. Right. It seems to be tending towards totalitarian and totalitarianism and authoritarianism instead of what they hoped for, which was liberalism. Why do you th what do you think that reveals about global capitalism when it only tends towards or it has trended towards totalitarianism and authoritarianism instead of towards the liberalism that the proponents of globalization and free trade had been pushing? Yeah, well, I don't want to uh, demonize China any more than the U.S. also while we're while we're talking, these are just different forms <laughs> right. that global capital has taken, right? Um, and so to, to understand that there isn't a political system necessarily that comes with capital except for bourgeois class rule, and it can, it can take and operate through a, a variety of political forms, even at one time within one country, uh, and does so. And so the fantasy of capitalism leads to liberal democracy, which leads to capitalism, which leads to liberal democracy, was revealed to have been a, a, a very specific historical fantasy that they very quickly forgot about, that people don't really talk about anymore. And no one makes those arguments, and no one really talks about how they were wrong to have made those arguments. They just don't talk about that anymore. Yeah, and it's a real shame. You know, you also point out how there was this idea of, uh, you know, everything always getting better. The next generation, it was going to be better off for the next generation. But that's not happening anymore. How much of an impact did everything stop getting better, that this generation uh, earns less than their parents, lead to the changes in perspective of the Occupy generation? Because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, Malcolm, and I, I think that that is the most misunderstood thing about the Occupy generation of the older generation. They don't understand what it's like to live a life where the, you know that more than likely your life is not going to be better than the previous generations. Do you think that's the most misunderstood uh, thing about the Occupy generation? 
I think it's definitely a part of it. Uh, this is a is a change in generational expectation, and like you said, this is this is a very recent change. This happens during if you're a millennial, this happens during your lifetime, where the expectations for society totally shift from this progressive accumulation of you know goods and services that's going to happen around the world, integrating into one big, happy capitalist family, um, to a situation now where we understand that any sort of technological development is going to lead to some people gaining and some people losing. And that's, that's changed completely. When the internet was first introduced as a like, technology that was going to change our lives, it was supposed to improve everyone's life. It was a straight-up improvement for everyone. We were supposed to get you know, better stuff, cheaper, faster, and the workers who were going to be doing it were going to be better paid. And we were all going to have to work less. That was the promise of technology. And again, we don't talk about that anymore. Now we understand that, well, you know, if Uber it gets introduced and it cuts the prices of cab rides for consumers, that's a good thing. And we understand that life will get much, much worse for people who drive cars for a living, but that's just like a trade-off we have to be willing to make as a society. Uh, We've come to understand capital as a system that's rival in that way, that some people's gain is other people's loss. And in a lot of ways, that's, that's a correct disillusioning, right? We understand the system much better now than we did back then when we thought history was over. As we were mentioning at the beginning of our conversation, the title of your book, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History, comes from the Occupy movement. What do you think the legacy of Occupy is? It's, it's been both criticized as a failure for not continuing and hailed as a success for, as you write, going a lot further than almost anyone expected. So to you, what is uh, Occupy's legacy? Because one thing I've been thinking about, Malcolm, is uh, Bernie Sanders. People are all saying that, well, at least, you know, Bernie Sanders might not have won in 2016. He might not have won in 2020. But at least he changed the conversation and brought up ideas like Medicare for all, uh, state uh, in-state tuition being free, student loan debt forgiveness. Bernie Sanders gets credit for changing the conversation, but I remember all those things coming from Occupy. So is Bernie Sanders the legacy of Occupy? I think it's it's definitely too soon to tell. I'm not sure Bernie Sanders is a... I sure hope Bernie Sanders is not a terminal point for any sort of movement or tendency or period in the United States because I think that would, be, that would be a really bad sign for how things are going to go. So I, I'm a little more hopeful than that, I suppose. But I think it is a little too soon to tell what Occupy was going to mean, what its legacy uh, will come to be understood as. Right now, we're you know, not even a decade out, and already our political terrain has shifted so much since then. I mean, back in 2011, talking about capitalism as a system was considered kind of like silly or ridiculous, and especially before 2008, totally silly and ridiculous uh, by most people. And now, like, people are sick of how much they hear about capitalism as an explanation for everything, because it is, it is a, a, such a common explanation these days, especially in this younger cohort, as an explanatory framework for, like, why things are happening the way they are. So I'm optimistic about what will come to understand Occupy's role to have been in that process of political development. 
but also Occupy was a response to, like you said, like concrete phenomena that were that were happening that was also creating this sort of political awareness, right? This is it was a reaction to this inequality, reaction to student debt, reaction to the increase in the rate of exploitation. Um, so those things are also creating awareness directly. Um, so yeah, it's too too soon to tell. Uh, I think both for for Occupy and maybe for the Bernie campaign as well. No wonder. As far as I was just going to say, no, no wonder our show was uh, dismissed as silly and ridiculous earlier on. Uh, no, no, go ahead. What you're saying? Exactly. Uh, from another angle, when I think about Occupy, when people ask, like, "Oh, what do you think the legacy of Occupy was? It a success? Was it a failure? Was it sufficient?" I think about there's this uh, interview that the philo- the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze gave to some interviewer, where the interviewer was asking him about this this work that he'd done with this prisoners' rights group. Uh, sort of the same kind of question in the 60s about, you know, was your work sufficient? And his answer was like, well, obviously, you know, we didn't free all the prisoners. It wasn't, it, we didn't accomplish our goals, but it definitely, you know, filled all of our time. It was definitely sufficient to fill all of our time. And that's how I, I like to think about that as in terms of Occupy as well. Like, was it sufficient to overthrow all systems of domination throughout the world? No. Was it sufficient to fill our time? It definitely was. Like, and I don't regret that use of time, and I don't think many people do. You also write that we'll, – we'll get to your uh, thoughts on the resistance in a second. I want to ask you a couple questions – or a question about the media first. You write that since Trump's ascension, the resistance has become a brand name, a content category. Middle-aged suburban liberals have boosted MSNBC to record audience numbers, and they've spawned a group identity to rival the Fox News infotainment cult. So, Malcolm, I got a – uh, I got a gift subscription to a small town newspaper in the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. While this is anecdotal, the opinion page of the newspaper is driven by those who watch Fox News, arguing with those who watch MSNBC. What happens when discourse becomes guided by MSNBC and Fox News? It's, I think it's really elder abuse. Uh, you, you take a look at who is watching, who is spending their time watching these shows, who is absorbing their information from television and it really tends to be older people uh and they're being misled into really wacky shit a lot of the time and certainly in terms of their focus of attention that's where it's maybe the most deleterious is the way it focuses people's attention in the wrong place just relentlessly just hammers you over and over and over again look over there look over there look over there and it's always the wrong place they're telling you to look and that it's it's hugely deleterious, I think, not only in terms of people's politics or whatever, but in terms of their ability to like absorb information, to grasp the, the content of the world, uh, to communicate with others. Uh, I really, my, my disdain for TV news is pretty, pretty deep over here. I love the idea of it being elder abuse because a lot of people want to uh, complain about Fox News to the FCC, to the Federal Communications Commission, to see if they can 
somehow affect their licensing. And when in reality, if you think about it as elder abuse, what you should be doing is going to Health and Human Services and talking to them about Fox News and MSNBC and their abusive tactics towards the elderly. So that's where we should be heading, Health and Human Services, not the FCC. You write the resistance pours over every detail of the president's internal affairs investigation, waiting for the day the cops finally throw the cuffs on Trump and his whole wicked cabal. A sizable portion of the audience is fully in earnest and is probably responding to the only call that's been addressed to them. But the money behind the performers is cynical and the resistance is not a resistance movie, a movement. What's the cynical money behind the resistance movement? Why do you think the resistance movement is not a resistance? Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at the corporations that run, I mean, MSNBC is what, a, a collaboration between Microsoft and NBC? Uh, these are, it's a, it's a entertainment industry. And we can see that now where the fail, at the time I wrote that piece, it's important to, for listeners to understand the like good money was that Trump would be like impeached and removed from office, right? That was the, the mainstream liberal opinion was that this was a foregone conclusion that he was, he was toast. And what I was saying is that like, not only is this not going to happen this time, it's not going to happen at all. And this constant delusion of, you know, we're really going to see him without his clothes, the emperor's naked, everyone's going to see it now and you're going to laugh him out of office has been really harmful. It's been deleterious to our, our political community because it allows people to just wait on this deus ex machina to come remove Trump from office that is absolutely never coming. And they just kept moving from one to the other. And so when impeachment failed, then it was, well, this corona crisis is going to, everyone's going to really see how incompetent he is. I was just reading this morning that when voters see 90 seconds of one of Trump's uh, corona press conference, his approval goes up by two points. You know, you can't just assume that it's a problem that's going to take care of itself and that you can participate by just like orienting yourself in favor of it and be like, I'm part of the resistance because I want Trump gone. It's a it's a distraction and a delusion and it's cost at this point many lives. I'm going to get back to your book in just a second, but I just wanted because you just mentioned uh, something that made me think of your Commune Mag article, uh, what the COVID-19 relief bill offers as a little survival, as a treat. It's time for a counterproposal. You start with the question, why has the American response to COVID-19 been so exceptionally bad? Yesterday, we were talking to the writers and activists Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker, who are co-authors of the Cosmonaut Mag article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. Remy said that we make a mistake when we only see the shortcomings of the U.S. response to COVID-19 as the fault of President Trump or the Trump administration, that it's a shortcoming of our capitalist system and our, our political leadership more generally on both sides of the aisle throughout both parties, not to let Trump's poor decision-making off the hook. But Malcolm, what do we miss when we only see the poor response by the U.S. government, government to the global pandemic as Trump's fault? Yeah, I don't even see it as a uh, mistake necessarily, right? It's not that they're, they're doing something wrong or the system isn't working. This is how it's supposed to function. You know, they know this stuff is coming. They know all sorts of disasters are coming. And this is how they plan to react to them. So this is, we're just seeing the strategy play out. This is not uh, something going wrong. This is how this system deals with 
its externalities. It's creating tons and tons of disasters. This is, feels pretty bad, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. And so to, to blame one person or to even to blame competence or incompetence is so, so wrong and so misleading. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the mistakes we've seen is this sort of cultural explanations for why countries have dealt with it well or badly. They're like, oh, you know, Asian people wear masks like this and Western Europeans wear masks like this. And that's why it's showing this direction in this way and this direction in that way. It's such a bad explanation for what's happening and so misleading for so many different reasons. Um, and it's not, it's not just bad politics because it's like bad to assign uh, or it's in, politically incorrect to explain things through racial stereotypes or whatever. It's bad because it's misleading. It's, it's simply incorrect. So when people say like, oh, look at these Japan numbers, they must be really good because, you know, you know how Japanese people are. It's like, no, Japan was hosting the Olympics. And so they intentionally under tested people so as to make the case that they could still host this, uh, these games, you know. Uh, South Korea, oh, Koreans are like this. No, South Korea overthrew their president with street demonstrations two years ago. And so the administration feels like really responsive to public demand, right? We need to actually be educated about these responses, not just work from bad stereotypes. And I think Trump is sort of one of those bad stereotypes. And you want to have a real resistance, not just protest. Under COVID, it would seem that protests, marching in the streets, going door to door, knocking on doors, handing out leaflets, those kinds of things are going to be are now impossible. And uh, you write about how, uh, you know, this is a resistance that's really important. There's the difference between resistance and protest. So does COVID make protest obsolete and does it make um, does it make uh, resistance, which is essentially protest when it is illegal, is a crime? Does it make that something that is a necessity? I think it definitely. I don't think I wouldn't go that far. Let's <laughs> let's say that first of all. So we're going to have people yelling at me for saying protest is over. Uh, there's still definitely a role for protest, I think, in the world. Uh, and ways that protesters have adapted themselves to COVID. But I think it definitely changes the balance, uh, changes the equation in terms of how we're considering different tactics, right? This makes sabotage way more appealing as a tactic than street demos, right? Because it's something that can be accomplished with fewer people that relies on sort of a lower level of security and the fragility of the systems you're attacking. Well, the systems are pretty fragile right now, right? There's a lack of guard labor uh, relative to the normal situations. And we're in little tiny groups all the time uh, talking to each other. So uh, yeah, I expect it. I think it should change the way we're thinking about tactics as well as strategies. Um, but maybe those are separate questions and we shouldn't confuse uh, thinking about new tactics with replacing our strategy with whatever tactics are, are at hand. 
before the virus when I would talk to people about why they don't get involved more in protest or in resistance. They'd always tell me that, you know, because of the gig economy, because of their precarity in life, they simply did not have time. Capital had controlled far too much of their times. So they didn't have time to protest. And uh, but now that we're barely living under the virus, uh, you would think that maybe now there can be more of an uprising. But do we even know how to resist after 40 years of neoliberalism? How much has our ability to resist been thwarted? It's true. I think there's a there's a real lack of knowledge about resistance strategies, resistance tactics, literally how to do that, uh, what security culture looks like when it's functional, uh, how you maintain group dynamics in these kind of situations. So it's true, we're going to have to relearn a lot of stuff. And I think maybe that suggests that what we think of as the left, uh, maybe the, the Bernie Sanders faction of the left, might not be where these innovations are going to come from because people are so out of practice and we're sort of used to looking under the light of strategies that we already understand, tactics that we already know how to do, rather than looking for new things and new ways to attack the situation and maybe new people are who's going to come up with that. You quote Candace Cohn, writing of the Department of Homeland Security for International Socialist Review in 2002. The long-term goal is a modern, massive, and highly invasive electronic policing system in which government and corporate databases are merged. I want to stress again this again in 2002. Information gathering is extensive and speedy, and the activities, backgrounds, and beliefs of non-citizens and citizens are easily tracked. And you add, those of us who talked about fascism in America were called crazy children, and though some of us were one or the other, and some of us were both, if anything, our verifiable predictions turned out to be conservative, which reminds me of climate change uh, scientists and all of their predictions also coming out conservative, even though they were being dismissed. That's a frightening state when what is viewed as extreme is accurate and the more mainstream message that is getting to most people is one that is very inaccurate, misleading, leaving the public unprepared for who knows what, maybe even a pandemic. Are we not in climate change denial, but many kinds of denial? And how sustainable is this denialism, even when it comes to American innocence and exceptionalism? How sustainable is all of the denialisms that we seem to be mired in, Malcolm? Pretty, pretty deep, it seems like. Uh, I mean, look, we're in this pandemic crisis right now. We're under lockdown. Life has completely transformed for most of us. And yet we keep going, right? Society goes on day to day. The the things that underpinned the society previous to this disaster continue to underpin it. The, The dynamics continue to go on. Our social systems continue to function, at least for now. Um, and they don't really show any signs of, despite all of their signs of like incompetence and letting people down, their grip on power hasn't, hasn't loosened any. Um, so it's hard to think, if we think about that as a sort of a, a metaphor for climate change, right, or even as a if you want to get really ecological about it as a symptom of climate change, as, a, as, a, as part and parcel of climate change, if we think about climate change as more than just carbon emissions, it's entirely possible. It seems probable that these disasters will continue to accumulate, will continue to affect our society at larger and larger scales, 
and we will maintain that denialism if denialism means the inability to address problems at the scale at which they require addressing then then we'll we will maintain denialism all the way through there's a, a jim jarmusch's uh climate change zombie movie the dead don't die i don't know if you've seen it but it's really good and one of the things it really gets at is people's sort of blaséness, even as they're being, you know, attacked and killed by zombies. They're like, oh, shit, looks like it's zombies. I should have seen that coming with the poles or whatever. You know, I guess we're going to be eaten by zombies now. What you going to do about it? And that's sort of how it's not like there's a, a switch that flips and you're like, oh, my God, we got to do something. It's like you can just be eaten by zombies. And it definitely feels like that's what's happening to us right now. The Dead Don't Die by Jim Jarmusch. I'll check that out. Uh, you write, uh, what justifications, uh, when justifications were in place and the calls came down, mayors and police in all jurisdictions were willing and often eager to deploy chemical weapons during protests in their city centers to disperse decidedly nonviolent assemblies during Occupy. Documents obtained by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund showed that the DHS and the FBI had mobilized the full breadth of the counter-terror infrastructure to monitor and hiding behind local authorities dismantle the Occupy movement. I wanted to read that quote because of what you were just saying about uh, the grip that the government has on power. Uh, law enforcement is working to undermine. Police are stopping lawful dissent. In your opinion, when it comes to the reaction by law enforcement, how illegal has dissent become in the United States? Well, it depends what level of dissent you're talking about. But if you're talking about, a some, again, one that's not denialist, one that addresses the problem at the scale at which it exists, they really, they, you know, a comparison I like to make is you look at the Hong Kong protests where, you know, there were, there were Molotovs and street battles and all of society was in the grip of this sort of like civil insurrection. The military didn't get called out. There were not tanks on the streets. Like that's not how it got solved. It was still a police response. In the United States, when things went off in Ferguson and, or Baltimore, you saw a military response almost immediately. And so, again, when we talk about like China as authoritarian or whatever, it's, this is not to say that China is not authoritarian, but it's not uh, you know, noticeably more authoritarian than the United States in this particular way, which is that we are, we are ready and eager to call in the military to put down any sort of uprising that happens in any of our cities, no matter who the local administrators are. Uh, and if that was clear during Occupy, it was clear during the Dakota Pipeline protest, and it was most clear, I think, during Black Lives Matter. And to understand America as sort of exceptionally hostile to those kind of uprisings, to resistance, from its population is something we have to really, really get our, wrap our minds around on the left, that it's not, uh, we're not just another country in that way. We are, we're really ahead of the pack. You also mentioned this idea of violence and how nonviolent acts can be 
reacted to by the public as being far more violent than actually violent acts can be. You write a confederation devoted to, say, disrupting of, of a resistance or protesters, to, say, disrupting the Department of Homeland Security and halting the enforcement of immigration laws is guaranteed to be treated like a terrorist group, even though its purpose and methods would have nothing to do with terrorism. It's the conceptual violence more than any threat to the safety of its personnel that DHS would find unacceptable. Both the general idea of people organizing to resist the law and the specific resistance to the government's ethnic cleansing program. How easily is the security state frightened, and what does that say about the security state when it can be frightened easier than we think? Well, uh, they're sort of ahead of us in some ways in terms of thinking about threats, which is bad, uh, but at least should show us something. So uh, one example is the other day I was walking by the Philly office of ICE, of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they had barricaded the office, basically the same way they do whenever we've protested. I've been to protest there a number of times, and they place barricades around the entrance, around two of the entrances to the building. And even though there wasn't, I don't think anyone was like working there even, and there weren't any protests scheduled, certainly, they had just barricaded it because they know because they know that you know they're in su- they're operating in such bad faith they're so they are enemies of the people and they know themselves to be enemies of the people that they always have to be prepared to fight with the people and they are because they understand themselves that way and we need to understand themselves that way as well in your article again commune mag uh, what the covid-19 relief bill offers is a little survival as a treat it's time for a counterproposal. You write, if there's one thing most Marxists know about the Black Death, it's that it raised wages. The pestilence that ravaged Europe's population also significantly reduced its labor supply, which forced urban employers to increase pay and rural lords to lower rent. It is a textbook example in economics of supply and demand. The goal of a strong relief program is obviously the opposite, i.e. to keep people alive, but the impact for employers is theoretically similar to mass worker death. A reduced supply of labor, not in the absolute in this case, but relative to current prevailing conditions and wages. So why can't capital just suck it up and pay some raises? They've successfully repressed wage growth for decades. Couldn't they take a small loss now under these exceptional circumstances? And you add... You don't think so. So what impact, if any, do you think a general strike like the one planned for May Day can have on worker wages and conditions? Uh, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I'm not sure how effective the tactic of withdrawing labor generally is going to be at this moment, uh, unless the White House and state governments are really determined to make everyone go back to work. I think a mass refusal to go back to work would be awesome. Uh, I think workplace struggles throughout the, the epidemic have been effective. People have gotten, I think, at least real proximate or short-term wage increases that they wouldn't have seen in other circumstances. But the, the White House is also pretty openly pursuing a policy or is openly considering policies designed to drive down wages in the wake of the pandemic, right? This is, uh, and we've also seen people's wages get cut as a result. We've seen these furloughs. So I think if uh, if I have to guess how this is going to be used, that it's going to be furthering this sort of attack on the wage and that 
if we're going to put together real resistance to what's happening, it's not going to be around workplaces or even the employment uh, relation necessarily. It's going to be at the, the social level. Why do you see the one-time $1,200 payment as nothing but a bailout for landlords? Why do you think the landlords will be the ones who are benefiting more from this than the tenants are? I think it creates a situation in which the landlords and other people who are owed money, other lenders, know that there's people are going to have cash in their pockets. And so they won't be able to make the excuse that, oh, I don't have it. You can't take what I don't have. Well, the government is saying, here, we're putting it in your pocket. And they're telling everybody, you know, just so you know, they've got $1,200. And we've already seen banks who are supposed to be administering these programs taking that money for debts supposedly owed or fees or whatever. So it's not even, it's not even making its way all the way to people. And that's, we've seen this happening and it's barely even started. So I think, I think it was a pretty solid one. And, you know, as you point out in your writing, what it's what at least what I get out of it is we have created an economy that can grow a system where people can profit and grow wealthy from a global pandemic that causes massive death and unemployment while people are scrambling for toilet paper, medical face masks, uh, now a fear of meat shortages this summer. We've made an economy that can actually continue only somewhat and temporarily disrupted by all that carnage. So which is more of a public health crisis, the virus or an economy that can profit from the virus? Well, I think they're, they're one and the same, right? If we, if we were addressing this virus without concern for capital accumulation, response would be totally different. It would, it would look a lot more like other countries do where we have public quarantine set up and we offer people rooms in which to quarantine themselves with resources and care which is something I talk about in the article. Uh, but it would also look just like completely different in terms of how we all spend our days. Um, if anything, it would look more like the sort of mutual aid projects people are building in their own time, I think, because that's how people want to spend their time, that is helping others in the situation rather than you know, producing exchange value. And you're right, we do care. That's a thing that, you know, we all care very much. You're right, we care a lot. We care all day, every day. Some of us have already died of it. And more will tomorrow. We care. Let that help define us and them. And let us take care of us and let that, and then let us take care of them. To what extent do you believe that defines our political divide today? Those who care and those who simply do not. Uh it's a, it's a it's an exaggeration. It's a rhetorical exaggeration. It have to do with the the name of the bill, which is the CARES Act. I don't think our our political divide is defined by voluntarism in quite that way. Uh, but I think it's definitely something we're seeing now, and it's a something we can motivate rhetorically. Is that people want to spend their time caring for others in this sort of disaster? They want to care for the people they love and they want to care for people they don't know even. They want to care for people who need help. And it's our political system and our social system and our economic system that stands in the way of people doing that. It does not facilitate uh, our desire to help one another, which is what theoretically it's supposed to be doing. Instead, it obstructs. It makes it more difficult for us to, to do those things we want to do. Uh, 
if that's the revelation that we can come out of this with or uh, that we can move forward with, then I, I'm sort of optimistic, I guess, about its impact on our political consciousness. And I, I just want you, again, just to explain to me just a little bit more. And Why do you believe that if the United States actually had the caring government, it had actually started employing caring policies, why do you think the American House of Cards would come crashing down? Because, again, the place that firms have been investing in is driving down their cost of labor. That's where they've been expanding productivity. They've been expanding productivity not by expanding production, by expanding output, but by driving the cost of labor down. And what that does, the way, one of the ways they've been able to do that in America in, specific, in particular is that there is not care provided by the state, by society in general to people just for being alive. And so we are, we are more desperate than other people are, than other workers are in other countries to sell our labor. And firms have benefited from that directly and that is, they've used that as a source of growth. So if the government steps in and says, you know, we're just going to we're going to make sure everyone has everything they need to get through this, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing. Well, the people who are frontline grocery workers who are risking their lives for twelve dollars an hour are going to quit. They're not going to go to work for that twelve dollars an hour unless they absolutely need to. Who's going to risk their lives for anything for twelve dollars an hour for any other reason than that they have to? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. So. And at the point where you can't get those essential workers to show up and work for those low wages, then capital has to renegotiate a whole new bargain with labor at a time when capital's in crisis, and they can't afford to do that. So I think they're going to maintain that laser focus on the wage throughout this crisis, and they have. If you look at statements from people like Art Laffer, they maintain this focus, tight focus on the wage, and I think we need to do that as well. Just a couple more questions for you, Malcolm. You write at the time it was written and published almost any piece in this collection of essays that you have, uh, just published in February, could have been described as pessimistic. And yet, when I look back at them, the big errors I find are in the other direction. I thought we had enough time and clearance to make or to keep fascists marginalized and out of the mainstream. I thought Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. I figured that things were going to get worse, but I couldn't imagine it'd be at this pace. Shit has gotten much more fucked up and bullshit since I started writing professionally, and it was already so fucked and up and bullshit then. Is the lesson then we can never underestimate how much shit will get more fucked up and bullshit? To accurately predict our future, do we have to figure it will be far more fucked up than we can imagine? Uh, not always. I think there's a there's a kind of pessimism you can devolve into where you can overwhelm yourself with how bad things are. I don't think that's productive either, right? We need the possibility of hope. We need a vision of how things could go otherwise. But in terms of our our baseline assumptions that things are going to stay the same and they can't get that much worse, I think that that assumption has been totally shattered because if you if you showed the world as it exists to you know, ourselves five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we wouldn't believe it. We would say, no, 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 we would have, you know, we would have revolted way before that. We would never have let, let things get that far. Uh, but here we are, and we are in sort of that, like, frog in the, the warming pot situation. 
pretty literally with the global warming. Um, so it's not that we need to err on one side or the other. It's that we need to be pretty rigorous in our analysis of the situation. We have been speaking with Malcolm Harris. He is author of Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit History Since the End of History. You can uh, find, you can follow Malcolm on Twitter at Big Mean Internet, Big Mean Internet. And you can find our conversation with him back in December 2017. We talked to him about his then just published book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, at our website, thisishell.com. And don't forget to check out Malcolm's writing. It really is fascinating, especially when he talks about the crisis of demand. In his article at Commune Mag, what the COVID-19 relief bill offers is a little survival as a treat. It's, a t- it's time for a counter-proposal. One last question for you, Malcolm, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You point out how this economy, how American capitalism, how neoliberalism, how late capitalism, whatever you want to call that, is very sustainable and can profit from disasters that take tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives. Venture capitalists, elected officials even, billionaires are all cashing in on the pandemic, proving capitalism can continue and will profit from doom. So for the sake of argument, let's say I'm a horrible person and I don't care how I get rich as long as I get mine, get away from all you freaks, arm myself to the teeth to protect me and mine. Malcolm, how can the virus make me rich? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, if you're an employer of labor, depending on what kind of employer of labor, I think you're going to be in a position to renegotiate that wage. And depending on how your workers are organized, you might be able to push, continue to push that wage down. And so it's really just the same strategy that they've, they've been pushing uh, once we understand it, we can see how they're going to keep advancing it the way they are now. So, yeah, I'm not shy about uh, sharing that. They, they know that. I don't need me to tell them that they need to push their labor costs down. Well, on that happy note, Malcolm, it's really a pleasure to have you back on the show. Count on us bugging you in the future. You're writing at Commune Mag, not only all of your uh, essays over the last 10 years. It's just exceptional. Thank you so much for being back on our show. And thanks for having me again, Chuck. All right, take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins. This is hell's advertising stickers, so you too can subvert the world with stickers that say, this is hell. See how listeners are telling the world this is hell. At our Instagram page, at This Is Hell Radio, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. Email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? And I do like this music. What is this? Uh, this is Grover Washington Jr.'s oh. Mr. Magic. Grover Washington. I did security for him. Wait, really? <laughs> yes, backstage in Michigan State University. There was a lot of sniffing going on behind that door. <laughs> uh, maybe a cold and flu season? Well, yes, definitely cold and flu season, definitely. It was cold and flu season that night for me as well. <laughs> uh, this is why you should get on Patreon. I think we might talk a little bit more about this later. 
What are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? Chris L. says, Me, I'm never more than six feet away from the grace of God and the good Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's very sweet. Uh, this one's right up Chuck's alley. Michael P. says, The carb. Gardell says, My astral projection. Steve S. says, To quote Jean-Paul Sartre, Hell's other people, so I guess I'm six feet away from hell. What are you six feet away from? Joanne C. says, my coffin in the ground. <laughs> I'm I, I really into my astral projection. I don't know why that struck me. Go ahead. Nick A. says, ever learning how to dunk. What are you six <laughs> feet away from? Jack W. says, a person shaking their head while I pointedly suggest we are the recommended 1.829 meters away from each other. Hashtag metric system now. Warren L. says, bankruptcy. And finally, what are you six feet away from? Michael L. P. I oh, wish I could. Oh, let me. I don't want to end on this one. Michael L. Damn you, Michael L.P. Michael L.P. says, D's. Oh, Jesus. I hate that so much. Oh, oh I hate God. that so much. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll announce this week's winner on tomorrow's show. It's on Thursday's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Sal Paolo correspondent Brian Mir will be back on to talk about COVID politics and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff since we last talked to him uh, about Brazil. And uh, Moment of Truth, Jeffy will uh, do part two of four of his uh, series on Dr. Drew or someone who sounds suspiciously like him. <laughs> suspiciously. <laughs> it's a little bit heavy-handed. Uh, so uh, Brian Muir is the, continuing our series of reports from correspondents and contributors who've been on our show over the years to tell us what's happening with COVID-19, where they are. So we've had reports, let's see, from San Juan, from Seoul, from Budapest and now from Sao Paulo. And we're hoping that next week we'll be having a report from a contributor who is in Taiwan. So tune in for that. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Malcolm Harris for returning here on This Is Hell. The planet's on fire with a virus. So yes, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>